Good morning, everyone. I'll admit to you right off, um, I used to have to travel a lot in my work, which involved a lot of plane rides, and it was exciting, it was fun to go different places. And, but what was unusual with me is I found out that the, the discomfort, the, the stress that came from flying on an airplane, I would have thought that the more I did it, the more I get used to it, the more comfortable I would get at it. And what happened is the more I flew on airplanes, the more uneasy I got about it. Uh, kind of worked backwards for me and to where to the point now that the thought, right or wrong, of me getting on an airplane just brings, brings stress to my mind, just the thought of it. Uh, getting up here and speaking to y'all from time to time uh, is a pleasure, yet I'll admit, I thought the more I do it, the more comfortable I'd get with it. And as I'm sitting over there thinking this morning, I'm thinking, this is just like that airplane ride. <laughs> because you, you got to do it again. And, well, you landed safely last time, but what about this time? Well, I've always landed safely up here, and certainly a lot of that has to do with some of the very kind things that you all say to me when I, when I find myself up here and speaking. So I, I appreciate it. But just know that there's a little bit of that in me. And my father used to say that, uh, you know, some of that may not be so much the nerves of standing before a group of people, but the fact that at some day that he would have to stand before the Almighty God to answer for what he says this morning. And there's a little bit of that too. Um, I think it was Jill's grandma who used to, use the phrase, sometimes I just sits and thinks, and sometimes I just sits. Uh, before Patrick had even called me about speaking uh, last week sometime, I'd been chewing on a concept in my mind that you may find it a little bit ridiculous and, and silly, and you can tell me later if that's the case, but I wanted to share it with you, and, and it kind of leads into what I want to speak about today. Over time, the... Uh, the idea of religion, the idea of faith to the world, I think, has sometimes been looked at as a haven for the not so bright, the uneducated, uh, the unintelligent. When man can't explain his life or the meaning of his life or the situations around him, he creates something called God and something called religion, and that's where he can handle those kinds of things. But the intelligent, educated world tries to figure those things out for themselves and looks at God as being a foolishness, being a superstition, fairy tale kind of a thing. So I got to thinking that to the people who aren't that educated, who aren't that intelligent, it doesn't surprise me that they would find solace in religion, in faith, that that would answer that need for them. 
And it also doesn't surprise me that people who are really smart, who are really intelligent, really educated, would look at faith in God as foolishness. But then I got to thinking, here's, here's my, here's the thing that I had to, to dwell upon was, I know a lot of really smart people, a lot of really intelligent people. Some of y'all in this room, I mentioned some of y'all. I might be smarter than a couple of you, but there's a lot of folks in here that I'm really impressed that you are people that I, that I, I honor and I admire for your intelligence. Uh, and I know a lot of intelligent people that believe in God. I know a lot of smart people that can't be hoodwinked real easily. And they've evaluated this book and they decided to believe in it. Now I'm not going to base my faith on the fact that that fellow over there is really smart and he believes in God so... I guess I will too. But it brings me just a little bit of comfort to know that there's a lot of folks smarter than me. And if they think this thing is right, that kind of helps me a little bit. I'll just admit that. Anyway, that's what I do when I sit around in the backyard in a chair just wondering. Stuff like that crosses my mind. If you would, uh, I'm going to read first of all from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this would be a pretty lengthy reading. But the idea of knowledge, the idea of wisdom, the idea of foolishness. I want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. And then I'll uh, reveal where I'm going from there. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence, or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. 
No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 12. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This thing we call faith, there's so much that God has given us that I find difficult to understand. Lots of things that I just don't know. So I wanted to kind of speak on that this morning, and I wanted to start off by confessing to you I'm a plagiarist. My lesson this morning are not my words, but they come from that little blue book on the front of your pew in front of you on song number 524. This is my outline for my lesson this morning if you want to follow along. A man named Daniel Whittle wrote these words apparently back in 1883. You know, some of these old songs we sing so many times, and I'm guilty of over and over again maybe trying to focus myself too much on trying to hit the right notes, that sometimes I forget to pay attention to those words. So we're going to look at this song without singing it. We're going to look at what this writer meant when he wrote these words, and I'm so thankful that we have men and women who can take concepts out of this Bible and can put them in an instrument that we can use, that we can walk around day to day and keep in our minds and our hearts to refresh us on those concepts. If you'll notice the four verses of this song kind of point to four different questions. Why, how, what, and when. Now, We've got a very accomplished journalist I know sitting here near the front rows. Charles, we may have some others, but I did take journalism in eighth grade. I I wrote for the Bunkhouse News at Woodland Junior High. But I know you got to ask those certain questions. You know, when you're trying to get the answers to a story, you got to know what and who and where and when. And maybe most importantly, 
Why? When Mr. Whittle wrote this song, those are some of the questions I think that went through his mind. Let's look at verse 1. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. The two concepts of grace and redemption. Two things that we've got to have. And two things that we can't find anywhere else in this world. We know that the unbelieving world is always trying to find satisfaction, trying to find contentment in so many different things. But when it comes to grace and redemption, there's only one place that we can find those two things. And that's from God. He's the only one capable of providing those things for us. But more importantly... Not just that he provides them to us, but that the way he provides them to us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul speaks about the abundant provision of grace. And in Ephesians, he talks about the riches of grace lavished upon us. God's not stingy with his grace. I heard somebody once say, you can't just have a little grace. You either have grace or you don't. And when God gives us his grace, he's not stingy with it, but he lavishes it on us. And when you think of the term lavishing, we think of abundance. We think of overflowing. That's the kind of grace that God has given us. In Romans chapter 3, we're all familiar, of course, with verse 23. And the situation we're all in because of our sin. But if you keep reading and complete the thought. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 24 tells us. And are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We see there the grace and the redemption linked together as one. And you know that term freely. I know sometimes I've been led to understand the idea that it's free because it didn't cost me anything. But I thought about another idea to consider. Is it says God, let me find my place here again. It says, justified freely by his grace. I thought that it was God that provides that grace. And I thought about the idea that he provides it freely. In other words, God's under no coercion to offer us that grace. Just like when we passed the collection place around here just a minute ago, you were asked to give freely. There was no coercion made uh, to put anything in there. God isn't forced to, pro to provide us his grace, but he gives it to us freely. But look again in the next verse also. Verse 25. Speaking of Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. I think of all the examples in the Bible where it talks about someone making a sacrifice. And how they would present the gifts. Or they would present maybe an animal. Um, and I thought about the way it's written here in verse 25. It's God himself 
that's presenting the sacrifice. We think about making a presentation before God, but in this case, it's God himself laying his son, as it were, upon the altar. And I had to think about the story of Abraham and Isaac and him laying his son upon the altar. Imagine how it must have felt for God to have to do that. And so the writer of this song asked the question, why? Now, there's another song we sing usually around communion. You know, why did my Savior come to earth? Why did he go through all that trouble? And the answer comes back in the chorus. Because he loved, some of you have heard the song, because he loved me so. Have you ever explained something to a child and when you get done with the explanation, they look up at you with those glassy eyes and they say, why? And so you explain a little bit more and you give a little more detail and you finish out that explanation and they keep looking at you as if they've never heard a thing and they say, but why? And you can seem to never satisfy their desire. They can't understand the why. Yes, I know God loved me so. Yes, I know all the things he did. But the writer of this song, I think, is asking us to consider, but why would God do that? Why would he love me so much? Why would he care so much for me that he would go to those extreme steps? Verse number two. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. How is it that we come to our faith? How is it that we come to our conviction? You know, in Acts 2.37, kind of the first gospel message, and we see the first conversions there. It says that, well, I grew up on the King James Version. It says they were pricked in their hearts. Uh, NIV says cut to the heart. And I remember as a kid, I would hear that verse and I think of pricked on the heart. I would think of of grabbing a a thorny bush and how that that thorn would, would, you know, prick your finger. I thought, well, that's a pretty uncomfortable situation. And I can't imagine what's it mean to to prick your heart. But uh, the people there in in that situation, when they heard Peter give that message, and they realized their guilt, there was something in them that made them respond. But what's a mystery sometimes is how that happens. We can have a hundred people sit down and read this Bible, but not a hundred will all come to the same conclusions. Everyone in here, if you think back to the day when you were convicted, the day when you decided to follow Jesus, Try to explain to somebody exactly how that happened. I imagine for each one of us, the story would be just a little bit different. To me, it's a bit of a mystery. It's hard to explain. I had a chemistry teacher in college, which was a waste of time. And the first day in class, he asked us to raise our right hand as if we're in a court of law. And he said, I want to ask everyone in here to take an oath that you will believe in atoms and molecules at least to the end of the semester. He was about to explain concepts to us that 
we couldn't understand and I still don't understand. He was going to be describing things that were happening that he couldn't really show us. Now we could go in the laboratory and do experiments that would somehow be a result of those theories, but he couldn't really show us an atom. He couldn't really show us a molecule, but he could show us the results of all those things. So he was simply asking us to believe in the concept. How somebody can come to know Christ, can be convicted of the guilt of their sin. There are lots of things working in that process. But the writer here, I think, is talking about, to me, a lot like that chemistry teacher. I don't know how God does it, but he does it. Verse 3. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. When we become a Christian, we still don't know what's ahead of us. I remember Richard Peace talking to someone who had recently become a Christian, and he, he warned them. He said, the devil's going to be out for you. He's going he's to have a target drawn on your back, so to speak. Because now you've become his enemy. When we become Christians, we don't have a guarantee of uh, a nice, smooth life. That everything is going to go well, simply because in this, in this life, simply because we've taken him on. Jesus famously told his apostles in John chapter 16, in this life, you will have trouble. He didn't say in this life you may have trouble or you could have trouble. Jesus says in this life you will have trouble. But he followed it up with a very strong statement, but take heart, I have overcome the world and we can overcome too. So the writer in this song, when he says, I don't know what good or ill, I don't know what's going to happen once I make this commitment. God's going to bless me, certainly, but there's also going to be some tragedy that comes with the triumph. And we're going to have to face both of those equally the same. The fourth verse, I don't know when, I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. I asked a Bible class one morning a question, and I'll throw it out there for you to consider. Would you rather be alive or dead when Jesus comes back? Now think about it for a minute, will you? Because, you know, when Jesus comes back, all the, to, to see him coming out of the clouds and all the, the illustrations that I'm trying to find here in 1 Thessalonians. You know, would it make a difference? Well, probably not in the long run, but I kind of wonder sometimes. You know, if I was on the earth and alive when that happens, it would kind of be neat to see. And if I was dead, I don't know if I'd get to see it or not. But it's something that crosses my mind. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So you see, my idea was, you know, if we're still alive when that happens, you kind of get to see that, and I thought that would be kind of neat. But we don't know when that's going to happen. We know it's going to happen sometime, but we don't know when. And the Bible tells us we're not to know when. Okay, so we don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know what, we don't know when. But like any good lesson, there's always a good conclusion. And the writer of this song gives it to us in the chorus. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Taken straight from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. There's lots of things we can't explain about our faith, but there are some things that we can take confidence and trust in. We know who God is, and we know what he's promised to do. Proverbs 28, 26 says, It's a fool that trusts in himself. But Jesus tells the apostles in John 14, If you trust in God... Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. That's one thing we do know. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read this a lot because of the theme of love. But I really like the end of 1 Corinthians chapter. I mean, I like it all. But I really like the end of that chapter. Verse 9. For we know in part. And we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes. The imperfect disappears. When I was a child. I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man. I put childish ways behind me. Verse 12. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There's a story in John chapter 9 about a blind man, blind from birth. Jesus comes along and heals him. And the powers that be have a problem with this whole situation. And they go to his parents and they ask them what happened, what, what was involved. And they say, hey, he's a grown man, ask him yourself. So they call the young man in there, asking him all about the situations. And I think he could have asked he could have answered a lot in the same way that the man that wrote this song this morning 
could have answered. There's lots of things about what had happened when Jesus healed him that he didn't know, that he didn't understand, that he couldn't comprehend. But I love the words that he shares in John 9, 25, where he says, this one thing I do know. I was blind. And now I see. I'm not up here this morning to uh, endorse ignorance or to promote not studying your Bible. We need to do that. That's a good thing. But there are so many things in the Word that remain mysteries to me, and I imagine they may always remain mysteries to me. But one day, one day I'll be a real know-it-all. I won't just act like one. I want to leave you with a poem. Once again, I'm plagiarizing. I'm still in someone else's words. But they're comforting and encouraging words to me. I want to leave them with you. Over time, you've healed so much in me that I am living proof that although my darkest hour has come, your light can still shine through. Though sometimes it's just enough to cast a shadow on the wall, I'm thankful that you care to shine your light on me at all. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And the more I hear that sweet old song, the more I understand that I cannot comprehend this love that's coming from your hand. If you need to respond, stand as we sing.